Welcome to The Golden Shadow. My name is Alyssa Polizzi. And I'm Aaron Rogerson. Next week, Lisa Marciano, Jungian analyst and host of this Jungian Life podcast, will be joining us as our guest for the Shadow Play speaker series at the STOA. Lisa is releasing a new book in May that dives into the emotional and symbolic journey of motherhood. So today we thought we'd explore the archetype of the mother. Lisa will be here on Wednesday, March 3rd mm-hmm. at 2 p.m. Eastern. Eastern time. You can RSVP at thestoa.ca. We've already had James Hollis meme analysis mm-hmm. and John Beebe. Mm-hmm. So this will be the next part of the series. I'm really excited. Uh, the archetype of the mother is what we're going to explore today. That's pretty broad and we're going to treat it pretty broadly as far as what the archetype of the mother means. And I think we'll probably start with talking about a little bit of the mythology surrounding Mm -hmm. the mother yeah, and maybe progress into a more sort of meta intellectual conversation about the archetype of the mother and what that means as we go. Yeah, if you've listened to this Union Life podcast at all, you probably know that Lisa references fairy tales and myths quite a lot. And it's a big part of her work to kind of bring in that side of Jungian thought into everyday life, kind of making sense of mythology and fairy tales from a psychological perspective. And when she joins us next week, we'll be going into the shadow and initiation and transformation through the process of motherhood. So looking at these stories really gives us a lot of different varying angles of how the archetype of the mother is expressed through uh, consciousness. Right. So we're not exactly going to get into what it means to be a mother in mm-hmm. kind of like literal sense yeah. today. I don't think the conversation is really going to go in that direction. Mm-mm. Neither of us have experience being mothers. Um, not yet. So uh, this is going to stick to being pretty abstract and pretty uh, mythological, archetypal, mm-hmm. kind of the patterns behind the patterns mm-hmm. of motherhood, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. The great mother is often what the mother archetype is referred to as. And I think it's got this real heaviness to it because it's encompassing a lot of different degrees of mothering. Mm. You have the cherishing, nourishing, um, emotionally connective, relationally oriented figure of the mother that we see. But there's also the kind of darker pole through the great mother, the devouring Mm. mother, the terrible, wrathful mother that we see. So when we speak of the great mother archetype, we're looking at both kind of light side and the dark side or just the bipoles of the two um, dynamics within the archetype. Right. There's always a valence within these patterns. Every archetype is, I would say, neutral on its own in some sense. I mean, that can get kind of complicated. Um, But there's kind of a valence to these patterns, right? And the the notion that the mother has a valence where it can be this viewed as sort of this positive light side, mm-hmm. but also viewed as sort of this negative dark side, mm-hmm. or it can be viewed as a constructive, creative energy, but also a destructive and destroying energy. And so it's important to keep that in mind whenever you explore archetypes, whenever you explore these patterns, whenever you explore any kind of notion of uh, an entity in the world that's sort of the foundation of our psychology, of our existence. There's always sort of these ways in which that entity can fall out of balance either towards the dark or towards the light. It can be a positive thing or a negative thing. So we're going to get into that. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the classic um, 
figures of like the mother goddess that we tend to see, the Virgin Mary, Isis, Demeter, Hmm. all of these figures who encompass on this first end more of that positive valence, you might say. Um, The Virgin Mary as the sort of mother goddess of Christianity, Mm -hmm. not only as the mother of Christ, but really... I think over time as she really moved into the collective consciousness became a figure in her own right that had her own worship. I don't want to call it a cult necessarily. It's kind of more Greek sounding, but, you know, followers um, or people sort of feeling like they see the Virgin Mary kind of coming to them in all these different ways or praying to her specifically that she carries her own dynamic energy that connects us to this principle of creation, of divinity, mm-hmm. of being that vessel of of the Holy Ghost, you might say. Yeah. And and she is one of the only really striking feminine figures that we do see in in, in the Christian um, theology. Right. Right. I mean, um, I am coming from a place of ignorance on this, but I would wager that she is like the second most prominent figure in Christianity mm. after Christ, yeah. obviously. Mm. And as you said, her depictions of her are seen yeah. um, throughout Christian tradition, throughout Christian art. Yeah. Um, there is sort of the, uh, you might even call it a meme of people seeing the Virgin Mary, like they see like a splatter on the wall and it looks like right, the Virgin or, Mary. Or in the grilled cheese. In the grilled cheese. Um, <laughs> And they take it as some sort of sign, something kind of holy. And because Mary has such a prominent uh, presence in sort of the psyche of Christianity or sort of the collective sort of mind of Christianity, you can tell that there's something actually deep and archetypal going on. Mm -hmm. It's not simply a figure that's being thrust upon people that has no, that has no deeper resonance or has no deeper significance. Like it actually must be tapping into something that we intrinsically feel. Uh, what is Mary sort of this goddess of compassion, uh, kind of goddess of goodwill, of purity, of the kind of the mother to the hero Hmm. of Christ. Christ is very much like a a heroic figure. Mary Mm -hmm. is the mother of Christ. Yeah. So it's it's obviously tapping into something that is archetypal and deep um, that I think you can see um, reappearing in different cultures. Yeah, there's, there's so much like incredible feminine strength that's implied with Mary as well. Mm-hmm. It's like the implication of the virgin birth being yeah. something that just sort of is thrust upon you mm-hmm. and you sort of become destined to be the vessel of the holy manifestation of God and then have to watch as her son sort of like rises into prominence and then is crucified. So there's all of this deep anguish as well and inner um, tenacity that's really required of Mary to, to be this figure, to have that strength maybe to, maybe God knew where this was going and someone had to be chosen that could fulfill this role, that could be that strength for Jesus, but also mm-hmm. could hold that pain and anguish after his death. Right. So there's there's so much depth to her. It's not just like she's demure and she could take, you know, like what God was giving to her. I think that there's a real implication of just an, an incredible amount of strength within her, that that deep feminine strength. Right, right. So the archetypal mother, um, Mary, not only uh, she conceives God 
incarnate mm-hmm. gives birth to God incarnate. Like it's already heavy enough, Yeah. but she also kind of sacrifices her son to the world. Right. Like she brings uh, Christ into the world. And I think there's some sense that she even knows what's going to happen to Christ eventually, but she gives Christ the world anyways. Yeah. And there is sort of that archetypal pattern of the mother uh, giving their child to the world, like mm-hmm. letting their child go eventually yeah. and saying like, I know that you are going to experience suffering and pain and mm-hmm. death. Like I'm having a child and I know the child is going to die someday. And yet I have the child anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's true for every mother. Yes. Yes. And so that, that kind of that pattern of the strength of the mother to not only bear the child, but to give the child to the world and in some sense, sacrifice the child to the world. Yeah. And to bear witness their fate, Mm -hmm. which is Um, so difficult at times that it can cause that kind of undercurrent of the dark side, the the sort of negative valence where like the mother becomes devouring or she withholds the child out of fear and anxiety. But to surpass that through the mother archetype is to let go and to bear witness to the fate of the child, to release them and know that you've done your best and to let what will come, uh, come upon the child. Right. And to take on the burden of the pain of being a mother. I mean, there's the pain of birth, but there's also the pain of watching your child suffer. Right. And there's a, this is going to be terrible if I'm getting this wrong, but the Pieta, right. That's, that's Mary holding Jesus, Mm. the famous sculpture. Mm -hmm. Of Jesus has been crucified mm. and she's holding him. And so like that really is portraying the pain that a mother feels yeah. that she not only brings a child into the world, which is painful, but she also watches as her child suffers. And that that is like such a deep burden, such a deep pain, but mm. it is like the way is the way of the mother to do this. Yeah. And I think that that's why Mary is such a powerful figure in all these ways of the the figure that can take on the burden of Christ. Christ takes on the burden of the cross, but Mary takes on the burden of Christ. And like his pain is her pain mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that is the mother. Yeah. There is, I think, a strong um, pattern of that that we see with a lot of these main mother goddesses of bearing the child and kind of suffering through some mm. difficulty. You know, Isis is another good example of having to call upon a lot of that deep inner strength to to be the anchoring that uh, allows, you know, life to return in a way after some sort of difficulty or strife or in like in the case of Osiris, uh, her husband, mm. who's effectively destroyed. She is the vessel of rebirth for him. And it's through her laboring and through her suffering of moving all around and finding like his scattered pieces along with her sister. So you have like another like anchoring of a, Mm -hmm. of a, of a dual feminine that she can bring life back, that she can bring Osiris. And also she nurtures Horus. So it's like her son too. She heals him. She heals Osiris. It's, she's carrying so much weight upon her shoulders, but that sometimes is the weight of the mother. It's the thankless job of keeping all of those things afloat. Right, right. So the glue that holds the family together, Mm. um, the role of the mother as sort of being that more subtle, more delicate uh, undercurrent of the family that keeps people stable and keeps people warm and fed and clothed. Um, Mother as healer, like you can go to the mother to be healed you go to the father to get structure and to get like direction and to get like a kick in the ass to kind of like get yourself in gear. But you go to the mother contrastingly to be healed, to be held, mm. to, um, 
to get that rest and the power for for women to heal men. I think it's also sort of mm-hmm. depicted in Isis as like men can be lost in the world, they can be destroyed by the world, and they can they can be on this lonely path. But like a, a woman can bring a male, let's say, into manhood. Yeah. And that, that sort of the healing of Osiris, the, the patching them back together, mm. I think, and kind of you can see the, the symbols in there. Yeah. There is that sort of dynamism that I think we see with the feminine archetype, especially, but it, even more pointed within the the kind of great mother are these really interesting stories as they act as these vessels of initiation, as these kind of guardians almost, the, the kind of gatekeepers into some sort of deeper transformation and the great mother archetype in these stories often is either like the healing vessel or maybe a little bit more on that sort of darker valence, like something that's pressuring like the younger uh, heroic consciousness or the young heroine to be forced into a situation just as the, the guiding hand of the mother might need to do at times. It's like, it's both nurturing, but at the same time trying to drive you towards initiation or transformation or maturation and the feminine principle is doing it very, very differently. Mm-hmm. At times it's through healing. At other times it's through a type of challenge or forcing the indiv- individual to find their own inner power. It's very different than the type of more active principle of the masculine, of the father archetype that's going to force transformation in a bit of a different way. So Demeter and Persephone yeah. is a very classic myth, yeah. Greek myth. Yeah, um, It's led to a lot of like rituals and cults yeah well yeah this uh, these two figures specifically are are tied to the Eleusinian mysteries which is still to this day incredibly mysterious because uh, everything was kept under wraps and what actually happened in these rites of passage and the initiations um was kept inwardly within uh, the cult itself, but it was mm. based around the the mythology of Demeter and Persephone and that there was the kind of descent into the underworld and at a certain point in ascent. So there was kind of like the lesser mysteries and all these different practices um, involved with the descent and the greater mysteries involved with the ascent. Mm. And it ties in this really dynamic pairing of the mother and the maiden and the earth principle, which is Demeter. She's the earth mother, the nourishing mother. She is the embodiment of agriculture and grain. She's the life-sustaining principle. And her daughter is Persephone or Kor, um, as it's sometimes called as well. And Mm -hmm. she is abducted by Hades, brought into the underworld, and it sets Demeter into this, uh, this space of despair total despair and loss mm. and she's wandering around the earth looking for persephone and as she does that she's not really tending to her goddess duties of keeping the agriculture thriving plants are dying um the this everything is withering around and you see that this inherently deep deep grief that the mother can feel at the at the loss of a child especially in a way that's so shocking and unexpected causes uh not just her but uh, nature itself to mourn Hmm. and so you start seeing life withering away as persephone is taken into the underworld Hmm. but 
that can't stand because basically everything is being destroyed. There's no way for civilization to sustain itself. So Zeus gets involved. They say, okay, okay, Persephone has to be brought back to Demeter. Um, Long story short, Persephone eats some pomegranate seeds while she is in Hades, while while she's in the underworld. And that ties her still to the underworld for X number of months a year, like six months a year. But for the other six months, she gets to be reunited with her mother. And that's the kind of return of spring. So at the time of when Persephone is in the underworld, the uh, seasons change, life withers, plants die, but she returns again, that renewal, the life cycle being connected to the mother, and life is born again when Persephone is returned to her mother. Wow, what a deep myth. There's a lot of things going on there. There's like mm-hmm. so many layers, like moments of like, oh, tell me more about that. Yeah. And it happened like five times during that. <laughs> so it's interesting because D- Demeter um, as sort of like this great mother figure. There's almost like this or part part of what I'm gleaning from the myth is like this over identification with uh, raising a child mm. or nourishing a child, and yeah. then when, when Persephone goes missing, that like she can't handle it and yeah. needs to like find a way to go get Persephone back. Yes, and she starts to neglect all her other duties because of that. It's mm-hmm. so sort of over identification with like what is my identity? Like yeah. it is mother. It's right. like taking care of this child, and it's like but the child grows. Mm-hmm. The child becomes an adult eventually. That could be in the sense that the child becomes conscious and maybe Hades is like a masculine force uh, of consciousness in the sense of uh, consciousness being sort of a masculine energy, but uh, also possibly Hades representing just the masculine coming to uh, mate with the the, the child or take her into marriage and the mother having to let go. Um, So this sort of, uh, this pattern of motherhood of like the arc of motherhood of like you're a mother for a while, but it changes and mm-hmm. it keeps changing and eventually the child leaves. And then who are you now? Yes. Um, so there's that at play. Um, but there's also sort of the, 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 uh, cyclical seasons changing, mm. uh, kind of like origin myth almost of like, why do the seasons change? Which is really, uh, really heavy and deep. And it yeah. goes back to, you can see sort of like, the most foundational aspects of our conscious understanding of the world of like, why do things happen this way? Why is the earth what it is? What are, what are the seasons? Um, but you can also tie that to sort of like the, uh, the cycle of mother giving birth to daughter, daughter becomes mother, mm-hmm. mother gives birth to daughter, daughter mm-hmm. becomes a mother. And that yeah. kind of like that cyclical thing that like motherhood is not only uh, beginning and end thing it's like no it keeps happening over and over and over again and the daughter always is confronted with becoming a mother and the mother is always confronted with letting go of the daughter yeah yeah the the entrance of the masculine principle is a loss ultimately to the to the mothering principle like she has to let go and in this sense there was a feeling that that came too early or it came unexpectedly. But ultimately, Persephone takes her place as queen of the underworld and she provides a balance to the principle of Hades as the masculine. And she has a role to play in the underworld. She is not just kind of second fiddle to to Hades. I would say that there are times when there are stories where she's interacting with other figures who come down. So she's a needed component. She's an evolution in that principle of death and the afterlife. And it's a difficult transition ultimately for Demeter, who we see 
in her grief and in her wandering, looking for something else to nourish. And in, you start to tap into, as you mentioned, that what happens when we become um, compulsively identified with the need to nourish and to mother. It's like that's when it becomes devouring. That's when children uh, become stunted in their maturity. Right. In some versions of the myth, Demeter uh, comes upon a, a castle She's dressed as an old woman. They bring her in to help nurse a child. And uh, there's like two sons of the king and queen, and she wants to make one of the children immortal. And so she's nursing the child, and then she does what gods do, which is you feed him ambrosia and you put him into a fire and burn away his mortality. And as she's doing that, the mother comes in and freaks out, and Demeter was like, what did you do? I was going to make him immortal. And anyways... Mm. The point is like she's trying to force that sense of her own definition of mothering onto someone else's child completely because mm -hmm. she's she's just looking to have some other um, form to ignite that feeling of of being connected to the mother child dyad and mm. she's struggling with that loss. so it's a, it's a very interesting nuance, I think that does highlight that she is struggling with some of that shadow pole of the mother archetype, despite how powerfully um, she's um, revered and celebrated as this goddess of, of mother earth and of nature and being all yeah. loving, you see her, her nuance in the story as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, a myth of balance. Like it returns to this this uh, this notion of valence again, right? It's like Demeter is like incredibly powerful, um, but with that power, with with that power requires a balance. It requires a stability. It requires uh, a sort of um, learning how to let go of moments, um, or learning how to grasp at other moments. But uh, that that sort of lesson that motherhood is something that is changing over time for you, and it it starts somewhere. And it goes somewhere and there mm -hmm. needs to be sort of a rolling with the flow of your life as a mother, um, understanding that where you were as a young mother is not where you're going to end up as an old mother and kind of learning how to navigate those, uh, maybe confusing waters of mm -hmm. loss yeah. that are associated with having a child. Yeah. It's, it's how you recognize that even as you step into this new chapter of life as a mother, that there will be points of challenge and uh, kind of like your own initiation points into deeper motherhood mm. through like different levels of it. Cause you start out as like the younger mother. Maybe that's kind of where Demeter was initially before Persephone was abducted. And that kind of shows that like psychological challenge of letting the child go, letting them leave the nest. Yeah. Um, another Greek story I wanted to talk about was Achilles and his mother, uh, Thetis. I'm not sure if I'm saying that. Maybe it's Thetis. But she's a, a nymph who marries a, a human king and gives birth to Achilles. And, of course, with Achilles, there is the famous story that he's immortal, almost, because mm -hmm. his mother wanted to protect him. And so there's kind of two versions of the story. You have version one, which is just like Demeter, feed the child ambrosia, you burn away his mortality, but that she was like holding him by, you know, the edge of the ankle mm -hmm. and kind of burning him. And then the husband comes in and sees, it's actually like very similar to the Demeter story. And the husband like gets in the way and stops the child from being fully um, immortalized. Mm. Um, 
and and thus he has a vulnerability. In another version, um, Achilles is being dipped into the river Styx, which is one of the main rivers that runs into the underworld. So magic river, you dip him in and holding him by the heel, Achilles' mom dips him in. And so he's left still with that one vulnerability. But sort of from an interesting psychological perspective, we see how Achilles' mother has this complete and total loving acceptance. Um, she's pulling out that that deeply mothering principle, that connection to the child, and it becomes like this psychic invulnerability that cloaks and right. wraps the child. And that um, creates this dynamic, powerful warrior. He's self-assured. He's confident. He's indestructible. At least mm -hmm. he feels that way. And there's that sense that when you're raised and you gain that nurturing and that acceptance and that feeling of being bolstered by the mother principle that the child feels that they can take on the world. And I think that's a very interesting angle of what's happening in Achilles' story. Is Achilles' story a cautionary tale in any way? I mean, <laughs> there's there's like the mother aspect of like making him like invulnerable. Sure. But is, is she in some way like responsible for him becoming overconfident and being too reckless yeah. and saying, I am invincible. Yeah. And like, he actually gets killed really easily. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that's very important to keep in mind because that sense of being uh, kind of inflated with that love and that sense of like, you can do anything, son, yeah. Yeah. without the caution or without to say, but you do have invulnerabilities or mm. watch out for this. Uh, the aspect that kind of humbles and grounds that um, that kind of inflating principle leaves yeah. the child in a space where they can be wounded. And in the case of Achilles, it's gravely, gravely wounded. Hmm. Um, there's an interesting quote from Freud, who apparently was like quite a mama's boy, like the, the firstborn child. <laughs> yeah. There's like the Oedipus complex. Is that is that what you mean? But... No, like his mother like loved him very dearly, okay. and, and she, he was very cherished by his mother, mm -hmm. and and she would tell him, "Oh, you're going to do great things," and this yeah. and that. I was reading this in a book by Edward Edinger, so another very famous Jungian analyst, and he quotes Freud saying, "A man who has been the indisputable favorite of his mother keeps for life the feeling of a conqueror, that confidence of success that often induces real success." Yeah. And I think that's interesting to consider with Freud, who became this incredibly powerful um, transformational figure in the world of psychiatry and then into psychoanalysis, really one of the pioneers of what we now know as modern therapy. And mm -hmm. yet his tale is a cautionary tale because he became so overly inflated with his uh, theory that it caused these ruptures, right? you know, very famously with Carl Jung, of course, mm -hmm. also with Alfred Adler, there was the feeling like you have to follow the psychoanalytic tenets by the T. And if you don't, I don't want anything to do with you. So it's yeah. like that, it's like an interesting cautionary tale of what happens when one is so inflated with this feeling of success that they lose sight of what's real, or there's this kind of egotisticalness um, that blocks you from seeing certain realities or just drives people away or leaves you vulnerable to attack. Pop culture injection really quick. Mm -hmm. um, Harry Potter, like in the first book, like uh, Voldemort can't, or Voldemort is possess possessing uh, Professor Quirrell, but Professor Quirrell cannot touch Harry Potter, 
without his like skin burning yeah. and his body collapsing because Harry's mother has given him mm. this sort of like uh, invisible magic protection. That's true. Which is like, like mother's love is mother's like how it's love. described. Yes. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, it doesn't really make any sense. I can't remember like the actual explanation of like, well, wait, how does that work? But like, that's like very much like the Achilles thing. I don't thing. think they explain it. I don't think they explain it, but they don't need to. No, they um, don't need to. That kind of gives it that flair of like modern mythology. Yeah. It's like just the mother's love that makes him invulnerable against these certain darknesses from Voldemort. Right, right. He's protected from evil because his mother loved him so dearly and that she like gave her life to protect him. Yeah. And so he's forever like covered in like this... Uh, invisible armor mm. against Voldemort. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on, getting into a little bit more of that darker side of the great mother, Kali, I think is a really interesting figure because in some ways we might call her like a, a bivalent figure of the great mother yeah. because she is both Kali Mata, the dark mother, but she also is Kali Ma, Kali mother. Mm. So she's both loving and terrible. She's destructive, but she's regenerative. She's mother nature in all of her awesome power, which is life giving and life sustaining and also devouring and destructive. Mm. She's uh, usually like painted black. So she, it's like her, bl her black skin is representative of like the darkness from which everything was born. Right. So she kind of has like that, like void mother symbology going on. So yeah. she's, she's incredibly complex. Like I think in some areas um she is worshipped more as that lighter mother and in other areas worshipped more as that destructive mother and that just shows you how complex these figures can be right right so the the void or the darkness or emptiness is from where everything comes from everything mm -hmm. returns um I was looking up Callie a little bit before this, and I did find her to be kind of like paradoxical. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> as sort of like this destroyer, yeah. but also like a creator and like the mother who like chops off the heads yeah. of men. It's like, that was like the image on Wikipedia. Yeah. She's like standing on like men's dead bodies with a sword and like holding Super up. Super like, badass. Yeah, she's uh, yeah. so cool. <laughs> um, and also that like the uh, Callie is the feminine uh the name that the word is actually like the feminine form of time mm. or it's like the changing aspect of nature that brings things to life or to death. So this kind of like cyclical notion again of like yeah. nature is like producing so much and also destroying so much. And that's what it does like produce, destroy, produce, destroy. Mm -hmm. And it's like happening and it's way, way too powerful for you to ever control it. Yeah. Kali is a good example of how, a great mother can be complex and sometimes it's much more obvious. Like I think with Demeter, it's a little bit more subtle. Mm -hmm. I think she's tends to be looked at a lot on that light side, but all of these really powerful archetypal figures really carry both of the valences within them. You just have to dig a little bit deeper to find it. Yeah. Um, Baba Yaga is another one I wanted to talk about kind of moving a little bit more into Baba Yaga, Baba Yaga uh, more into fairy tale lore. So mm -hmm. you see Baba Yaga in lots of like Slavic Russian folk tales. Um, she's like the thonic dark mother goddess. Mm -hmm. She's lives in like a house that's on chicken bones and oh, right. she like, uh, yeah. flies around in like a mortar, like a mortar and pestle. Uh, mm. she's usually like very witchy and and you know like looks like that very classic yeah. like big scary ugly witch woman but she's deeply powerful she is another symbol of the nature goddess um she possesses the powers of life and death in certain 
fairy tales, it's noted that she controls the sunset and the sunrise, like the power of the cycles of nature are under her control. And she can provide heroes and heroines with the power to sort of overcome their challenges or their main journeys. But she also often is like threatening them at the same time, like Mm. in Vasilisa, uh, the beautiful or, or the wise, as it's sometimes called, Vasilisa has to do all these like really ridiculous tasks that are like impossible to do. Mm-hmm. And should she do it, then Baba Yaga will help her. But it's like, if not, I'm going to eat you, you know? Mm-hmm. So there is this feeling that the dark feminine is going to destroy you. And to survive, you have to transform. You have to become stronger. You have to become smarter. You have to find some sort of inner power. And when you do, when you pass her tests, then you're given the fire then you're given like this magical horse that's going to help you beat you know this monster these are actually directly from the fairy tale so she's both devouring and life generating she is a principle of transformation but she will also destroy you so she's very complex in that way right but she represents like the only path towards uh growth and development Mm -hmm. and towards individuation The, the whole idea is like uh out in nature is where the changes and where the growth is yeah. where, where you can achieve something where you can become the person you're meant to be out in the wild and that can be like a metaphorical wild mm. which is just like out of your comfort zone yes. like you have to venture into the wild into the unknown in order to actually become the person you're meant to be mm. in order to transform uh the whole idea of like the dragon of chaos is where the treasure is right yeah. you have to go venture and slay the dragon in order to get to the treasure and so Baba yaga is sort of um, embodying that idea is like, uh, here's some ridiculous tasks for you to achieve. And if you don't achieve them, I will destroy you just like nature. Yes. But through the tasks are like the ultimate prize. Um, same with like sort of the the notion of the the development of consciousness being this sort of venturing, um, back and forth into the unconscious sort of consciousness, unconscious, Mm -hmm. consciousness, unconscious, like the hero doing that cycle. And it's like this upward ascending spiral of individuation. Um, I had another thought, but I can't remember. (laughs) I think especially you're reminding me of the conversation we were having about the wounded healer where the, the kind of archetype of the shaman will at times choose to go out into the wild. Exactly. And this is your path towards being initiated into a deeper place of service into finding inner strength to triggering some sort of, um, act of individuation that prepares you for this next cycle. And it's by going out and, uh, subjecting yourself to the elements Mm. which could very well kill you yeah but if you don't die something major happens you are changed on a deeply spiritual level consciousness shifts and that's the principle of baba yaga she Mm. is that wild natural principle that as that is forcing individuation for any uh consciousness that comes her way right The, the the other thought i had was that Baba Yaga could represent sort of like the dark feminine in sort of like the non-good mother figure in your life that comes along and actually brings you into womanhood in a mm, different way. Interesting. Like saying like, uh, like the good mother, like maybe your mother is someone who protects you and nurtures you and says like everything's going to be just fine. Like you're my like, special little girl my or my special little boy. But then like there's this exposure. Maybe if you're 
uh, female exposure to like your new female friends who might mm-hmm. be more mature than you and might be experimenting with things like alcohol or boys and like they bring you into womanhood yeah. even though they kind of represent like the dark dangerous unknown yeah. and maybe the good mother is like no 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 wait, don't go out there but it's like you have to go out there in order to like achieve completeness or to like the young man the, uh, the dark feminine maybe I mean I guess Baba Yaga is like an old woman but the idea that like exposure to girls like you leave your own mother to go uh seek out a woman in your yes. life who maybe will corrupt you but it actually brings you into manhood like that corruption oh yes because in some sense. yeah there's the maiden tsar um and that's a really famous russian fairy tale as well where you mm-hmm. have the hero ivan who has to visit three different baba yagas sometimes they come in three like they're three sisters huh. and he has to deal with that same principle of mm-hmm. like you have to beat the Baba Yaga in some way mm-hmm. and then you can get to your fiance that like is all the way across the world. So he's also having to go through the the challenge points of the Baba Yaga through the dark feminine to right. be worthy enough really to be joined with his feminine half. Interesting also, more, more thoughts keep emerging from this, but like <laughs> the idea that like the uh, the young man, like in order to have a good relationship with his fiance mm-hmm. or the woman, he actually has to dive down into unconsciousness right. or he has to get more in touch with his feminine side, you might yes. say, in order to understand his partner. Yeah. Be like, why are you so weird and yeah. different and subtle and mysterious? Like I'm confused by the female right. and like getting in touch with the feminine, getting in touch with the unconscious side of you. It might even mean getting in touch with your feelings and your vulnerability. Uh, that's key to becoming a real man. Right. It's like to also embrace the feminine in well, some yeah, sense and yeah. to understand it. Yes. So having to go through Baba Yaga's as sort of like the feminine energy mm-hmm. as such, or like the dark feminine, yeah. it's like the male has to do that in order to understand the feminine in order to become the perfect partner yes. for the young woman or the maiden uh and so there's like this paradoxical again it's like dipping into the feminine actually makes you more masculine yes and then this like cycle of bouncing off anyways so well from a psychological point of view these fairy tales the myths are often looked at as the merging of a sort of single individual's masculine and feminine principles. Mm. So Ivan in The Maiden Sar has to go through, as you're saying, that kind of unconscious, dark, thonic, feminine, learn the ways of something much more primordial to realize his own feminine side. And that's Mm. what is imaged as the fiance. So so we always have like, and then the prince and the princess got married happily ever after. It's like, that's that's a principle of individuation. That's yeah. masculine and feminine principles coming into relation together and coming into harmony. So it is his own feminine that's mm-hmm. imaged as um, the fiance, as the love, as the anima figure, because we as individuals need to get in touch with both sides of our own dual nature to be more of a complete version of ourself. Okay. So uh, should we move on to pop culture, modern yeah. myths? Yeah. Uh, maybe a little more familiar, maybe not, depends who, who you are, who's listening. But um, Galadriel in Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. strikes me as sort of a great mother figure to yes. the fellowship yeah. and to Middle Earth in general. Mm-hmm. Um, she is a protector. She has uh, she has one of the reins of power. They don't talk about that much in the movie, but she does have one of the reins of power. Um, and it allows her to like... Uh, protect the entire forest realm of Lothlorien and serve as like this queen and 
she can read minds. She has this like crazy empathy and this mm. crazy ability to like uh, intuitively see what's really going on under the surface. Uh, she also provides all these gifts to the fellowship before they set off to continue their journey. And so it's like very motherly. Like she mm-hmm. takes them in, she protects them, she sees what's really going on. And then she like packs them lunches basically for them. <laughs> and they, they keep going on their journey. But in addition to that, she also has like the dark feminine moment. Yeah, she's bivalent, definitely. Right, right. Where's I like, am beautiful and powerful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. She's so cool. Yeah. And her her voice drops. Yeah. Um, she And like the colors change and right. you just see that like if you fuck with Galadriel, yeah. she will destroy you. Right. So the great mother has the potential for great destruction. Right. And that's what every mother is really balancing in mm-hmm. within her is staying in flow with that that life-giving nurturing principle, but also becoming like the the angry, violent mother bear that has to destroy what is threatening. Right. And you see that, you know, in Galadriel, she yeah. has that power for darkness. Right, right. And also sort of communicates this idea that she's actually really in touch with the unconscious or she's mm-hmm. really in touch with the darkness, right? Like you don't see Elrond like going like crazy, like dark masculine or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, maybe that interpretation is fair maybe it's not but galadriel like does represent like someone who is in touch with like the the netherworld or the dark side powerful than elrond isn't she Uh, it's depicted that way definitely even though elrond also has a reign of power supposedly it's all part of of the lore yeah i probably sound like a huge nerd because i know this but um (laughs) anyways um catelyn stark yeah and cersei game of thrones game of thrones um they're not the only mothers in the series but They're two very prominent figures yeah. in the story. Catelyn Stark is the mother of the Stark children. Um, so she plays this role in all these different plot lines. She's, uh, you know, Rob's mother and mm-hmm. she's Sansa and uh, Arya's mother. Mm-hmm. But she's also kind of John's like anti-mother it's in true. some weird yes, sense. Yes, she's very dark mother towards John. Right, right. So she's embodying all this like protective energy. She's... Uh, doing it in this very motherly way where she doesn't pick up a sword or anything, mm-hmm. but she still is like roaming around and she's uh, taking care of important business and she she's like, making contact. She taps into more of that feminine, feminine principle of like diplomacy yeah. or intrigue or mm-hmm. influence. You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. she's wielding power in a much less active way, yet is still an incredibly important player throughout mm-hmm. all of the storylines. And it's the mother principle that drives everything. It's right. for the safety of her children. It's for the continuation of her house that she is willing to do what it takes to keep um, her children in the game effectively. Right. That is her main, one of her main really identifications in the story. Uh, spoiler alert, when she dies and becomes Lady Stoneheart, yeah. only in the books if you've read it. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting contrast because you see like her become the like thonic underworld version of the vengeful mother. Yeah. She roams around with like a band of, I don't know, like warriors and right, it's just the, the brotherhood, the brotherhood. Right. Yeah. And she's like, just like killing everyone in her path who she mm. thinks had a role because she believes that, what was it? That both Sansa and Arya were killed. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's incredibly interesting to see her dip into that really dark feminine upon her death, which is a psychological transformation. 
Right, right. And there's kind of like the uh, the Mary archetype coming up again. It's right. She's like, she's sacrificing her children yeah. to the world in some sense. Yeah. Like she is like accompanying Rob as he goes off to war. True. And she knows that he has to do it and he might die, but she accompanies him anyways mm-hmm. and stands by him and kind of provides this like motherly wisdom behind the scenes as Rob fights these wars. Yeah. And then turns out almost, not all of them, but like the, 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 uh, the Stark sons die mm-hmm. and that's part of her burden yeah and she has to she has to watch her son rob be murdered yeah and so again there's sort of like this very uh sacrificial taking on the taking on the son takes on the cross and you take on the son yeah and, and that pain right she watches him die first before she kill she's killed and in the in the show specifically they just did such a good job with showing the anguish she like yeah. lets out this just banshee like scream and yeah. then they slit her throat you yeah. know it's just it's incredibly powerful really depicting that pain of the mother and yeah. having to let her son go as she loses her own life right i, th- I feel like we need to be better about saying spoiler alert you you, you, you did say it <laughs> but like i feel like we dove into like some really heavy revelations about game of thrones like pretty oh quickly oh my god anyways uh we'll try Sorry, to do better guys. next time spoiler anyways, alerts. spoiler alerts uh <laughs> we're gonna continue with spoilers um, Cersei, in contrast. Spoiler alert for anything we're about to say. Yeah. Um, Cersei uh, is in contrast to Catelyn Stark. Is like still a very strong feminine figure. And she's like more kind of like the uh, Yane feminine. Yes. Where she's like yes. wielding real concrete power. Yeah. And she's like murdering people. Making big and moves. she's scheming very yeah. intelligently. Yeah. And, but she's still doing so in this very feminine way. Which yes. is sort of like behind the scenes mm-hmm. sort of like underneath what's happening she's sort of like this spider like weaving this big web that yeah. people are getting caught in um she's also using her body to sort of manipulate people mm-hmm. and get her way she's yeah. seducing men yeah and so it's like this whole another side of the feminine that's like still incredibly powerful yeah um still incredibly protective of her children right like she's like very driven to protect her children the entire time that's yeah. like a lot of what she's doing yeah but it provides kind of like this contrast of like the negative valence in some sense of the mother yeah but at the core they're driven by pretty much the same thing because yeah. for how selfish cersei is or seems or is depicted ultimately the complexity of her character is the the deep maternal love that she mm-hmm. has for her children yeah. and also spoiler alert that it's prophesized that like they're all gonna die right is that what happens yeah. right so she's like living with this fear her entire right. life That's the Mary thing again yeah right. it's like how do you how do you live with that mm-hmm. and especially in a world where like magic is real pretty much and yeah. A, a sorcerer is saying like all your children are going to die. It's like she still pushes forward and, and she has an incredible impact on that story. How about Ursula from the little mermaid? Lots of like dark mother goddesses in the Disney princess stories, mm-hmm. Maleficent, Ursula. They're these figures who embody the darkness, who embody the, uh, the kind of wrathful feminine yet, through all of it is the maiden consciousness, the princess being forced into situations where they must overcome or where they're having to kind of walk this path of individuation that has been set. So I see them as like very, um, 
similar to the kind of Baba Yaga figures in the fairy tales. Yeah. Mostly because all of these stories, for the most part, are actual fairy tales. Thus turned into Disney movies. Yeah. But, you know, Ursula is interesting because she takes away Ariel's voice. At least we'll talk about just the movie version and not the actual fairy tale version. But there's a feeling of that Ursula is taking something from the maiden that she identifies with something that would actually maybe be an easier path towards, um, joining with the masculine, with the prince. And she's got to find these other ways. She's got to tap into new potentialities for that maiden young consciousness to grow and then to be sort of worthy enough to be joined through that sort of conjunctio, the conjunction of the masculine and the feminine. And it's coming through, that dark, you know, witchy woman mm-hmm. who's got the magic, who's taking from the feminine, yet at the same time is actually providing her a path towards growth, towards maturation. Right. The Disney movies are great examples of exploring the, the heroine's journey. Yes. Which I think it's really interesting. Yeah. Because yeah, you actually don't see the heroine's journey being explored as much in yeah, other we wanted, media. Yeah, we want to get to an episode on that. Yeah. It's 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 in the list, but often the heroine's journey is a lot about the confrontations with the feminine principle and often the turning away of the feminine principle or the interaction with the thought with the thought of kind of dark feminine or yeah. some sort of greater primordial feminine that they right. really have to come into relationship with because that that is the guardian uh towards their deeper maturation that older principle that understand what's it what it takes for the younger uh consciousness to be um kind of initiated and ushered in to development is always through that deeper powerful sometimes punishing feminine principle and that's a big part of that heroine's journey right right the the, the disney movies i mean definitely depict the heroine's journey as sort of a, a turning inward there's kind of a more of like a journey into the unconscious mm-hmm. It's more sort of a cerebral psychological journey of development as opposed to the masculine hero's journey, which is one that's very much like going outward, like very like literally traveling across the land to go, mm. to go conquer chaos in a different way yeah. or journey into the netherworld or unconscious. Uh, the the uh, analogy for men is like the chaos of the unconscious is, is instead like a real dragon that right. must, be, must be defeated. Right. Um, so they kind of, they parallel each other, but they're a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And the, the heroine's journey, at least in Disney movies, is like the journey towards motherhood, yeah. <laughs> essentially. And that, yeah. might, and that might be honestly why the sort of, that story has fallen out of fashion. Mm. Because mm-hmm. it's like, what's the the female hero's journey? It's like, it's the journey towards being a mom. Right. And it's like, mm, we, don't, we, we don't really feel as strongly about that as being the truth anymore. Feels traditional or old fashioned, right. but there's more to it, I would say, yeah. both on like a deeper symbolic and psychological level, but also ultimately and hopefully what we'll get into with Lisa's event next week is right. like how powerful motherhood is for a woman, just as as for a man, the the principle of, of tapping into the father. There's in some ways no greater challenge than that. And that is something that can't be denied. All right, how about the oracle from The Matrix? That's an interesting one, right? Yeah, AI, great mother archetype at play. Mm-hmm. She, I think, maybe isn't a character that would come to mind for a lot of people, but you start to look at the subtlety of the space that she holds, this kind of 
communal orphanage of all these special children right. that she's nurturing and tending to and kind of guiding them towards, I don't know, tapping into their power. Mm-hmm. She's baking cookies. Bend, bending spoons. Bending spoons. And floating blocks in the air. Yeah, and yeah. Stuff like that. yeah. can't remember what they call them, but I don't know. But she's like, she's bringing people into personhood. Yeah, These yeah. children, right. and she's like raising them up in some sense. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's very vague what, mm-hmm. what's actually going on. Yeah. But she sees like... um the uh, the humans who have made it out of the Matrix and are traveling back in, like Neo and Morpheus and Trinity, she's also uh, serving a role of guiding them yes. and providing wisdom yes. and having this sort of like, uh, again, this sort of feminine connection to the unconscious where it's like, I can see the future mm-hmm. and I intuitively know what's going to happen yeah. and I know what's happening inside of you. Yeah. In fact, I know what you're going to do next. You're going to break that vase. Mm-hmm. And like Neo breaks the vase. It's like, how do you know all this stuff? And it's like, <laughs> just like women's intuition, basically. But it's it's fascinating to me because she's a program, right? Right. Like she's not real. So there's this feeling. What that, is real? Right, yeah. Especially how do you the define Matrix. real? <laughs> Sorry. Um, but this idea that there is a kind of like rogue program of the Matrix yeah. that still is tapping into something that we would consider so inherently human Mm -hmm. is being expressed through the Oracle. And that kind of just shows you like the, uh, the impulse for the archetypal great mother to be expressed even in this story. And then to give it complexity by making her not a robot, but a program, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know? So she's, she's still guiding in a way that's powerful and soft. She doesn't overly nurture you know she mm-hmm. she tells each individual what they need to hear which for like neo spoiler alert is that you're not the one yeah if you need a spoiler alert for the matrix <laughs> i don't know what's going on but yeah. now i feel compelled to say that no, anyway good. spoiler alert neo mm-hmm. you're not the one yeah. but that wasn't necessarily the truth but it was the truth that he needed to hear. So that brings into mind that difficult role of mothering of how to give lessons to the children so that they grow into the versions of themselves that they're destined to be. Right. So like a a father figure might just like drop drop like mad truth bombs (laughs) and be like, Here's the deal, Neo, you are the one, actually, and you need to, like, get your shit together. He's like, oh, my God, I just, like, can't handle it. Yeah. <laughs> like, so you're the one. Uh, we're going to come up with a plan now. Okay, so, like, sit down, right. son. So, like, Father uh, Ark will be like, okay, training program, let's yeah. go, like, right. you know, toughen you up. Right. But like, the Mother Oracle, mm-mm. She, like, does, like, this more subtle Very sort subtle. of, like, uh, playing with the currents yes. of, like, reality in yes. some sense of, like, are you the one? Mm, sorry kid and but like yeah. she actually knows that she's setting him on like the right path right. he just doesn't know it yeah. and she has that sort of in, intuitive uh, again connection to the unconscious in order to manipulate these energies in some way yeah and then she gives him a cookie the most motherly thing of all mothers know that there are th- these symbols of nurturance yeah as someone who loves to cook like i appreciate it because mm-hmm. there is this sense of she's offering him something in that moment. And that's a piece of uh, a comfort, a symbol of something known, maybe something his mother gave him when he was a child. Mm. There's some bad news, but there's also a feeling of like, I care for you. Like I take care of you. Yeah. And then she sends him off to complete his tasks. Mm -hmm. Okay. So on Wednesday, again, March 
Third. Third mm-hmm. at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, Lisa Marciano of This Jungian Life podcast. She's a Jungian analyst mm-hmm. and author. Yep. Uh, this is not her first book, right? I think it is. And it's coming out in May. So you should okay. pre order it. Her work is great. Check out the podcast, Three Jungian Analysts Who Talk About All Sorts of Dynamic, Interesting Topics. Yeah. It'll be interesting to make a connection with her mm-hmm. and see if there's any resonance there. Yeah. But uh, the event is free. Yep. We'd love to have you. You can RSVP at thestoa.ca. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash goldenshadoworg. Do you have a dream you'd like us to analyze? Head over to goldenshadow.org to submit your dream for possible interpretation on a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next time.